You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. This podcast was recorded on the traditional, ancestral, and stolen lands of the Musqueam people. We are committed to ensuring Indigenous women's rights to health and safety and the equal opportunity to participate in a manner that recognizes and respects Indigenous cultures and traditions. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Women's Health Interrupted. I'm Sarah Williscraft. And I'm Chevy Mehra. Today, we are going to be discussing abortion rights and access to reproductive care for immigrants to Canada. Our guest today is Dr. Lindsay Larios. Dr. Larios is an assistant professor at the University of Manitoba's Faculty of Social Work. She holds a PhD from the Department of Political Science at Concordia University and a Master of Social Work from McGill University. Dr. Larios is also a research affiliate with the Center of Canadian Policy Alternatives and the Center for Human Rights Research. Her research focuses on questions related to citizenship, justice, and human rights by applying a reproductive justice framework to the Canadian immigration context. Dr. Larios's most recent work focuses on the politics of pregnancy and childbirth and precarious migration as an issue of reproductive justice. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Larios. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Well, let's get started. So Dr. Larios, what challenges do you think pregnant people experience when trying to access abortion or general reproductive care as immigrants to Canada? Yeah, so there's certainly a a wide diversity of experiences, um, in part because there's lots of different ways to be an immigrant in Canada. So different pathways, processes, etc., things like that, each with their different implications on how one is able to access uh, health and social services and potentially um, what that experience feels like for them, right? So my research focuses on people in Canada without permanent residency or citizenship. So this is what we call precarious immigration status. It includes people with a temporary status like migrant workers, international students, uh, refugee claimants, certain family sponsorship applicants, as well as others who may have lost their status for, for different reasons. One of the most significant challenges for folks in these groups of migrants is when they are ineligible for public health care coverage. So this can look different in different provinces. In Manitoba, where I am right now, this would include migrant workers with permits under 12 months, all international students and their partners, and just others who are on temporary residency permits um, or who have lost their status. So people in this situation will sometimes often have private insurance. However, in many cases, these private insurance plans don't cover things like prenatal and obstetric care, or it may cover a portion, but only offer like reimbursement at a later time. So people are often paying for prenatal care, ultrasounds, uh, blood work, um, all out of pocket. During the third trimester, uh, the hospital their doctor is affiliated with um, will often ask for a deposit meant to cover the costs of the hospital stay and the health services and physicians attending them during the birth. So these deposits range from about 5000 to 16000 in Montreal, where uh, my last project was conducted, or here in Manitoba or in Winnipeg, sorry, 25000 to 30000 So if they can't pay... Arrangements can sometimes be made with physicians for ongoing prenatal care, but more often than not, they're simply left to um, with the only option of just showing up at the emergency room when they're in active labor and um, seeking that emergency care. They will still be billed 
but this can be negotiated after the birth rather than paying a large sum up front. So this is incredibly stressful for prospective parents as well as healthcare providers because there's no clear system or guideline for how this should be negotiated. And we know that people really, they, they forego vital prenatal care just because they can't afford it. A while ago, there was a Montreal-based study looking at the case files of uninsured uh, migrants and refugee claimants who were uh, pregnant, and they found that 78% of uninsured patients weren't receiving ultrasounds, 78% had no blood work, and 66 had no prenatal visits. This finding is pretty consistent um, with other studies. It can really also lead to complications or at least heightened risk during the birth process or the pregnancy in general. So we know there's an increased risk of emergency C-section, postpartum depression, and other kinds of health complications. And it affects their overall experience when they're giving birth. So patients deciding not to take an epidural because they can't pay for it or being refused it until they can pay for it, even though they're in active labor. Patients have said that they felt like, oh, well, these doctors and these staff are doing me a favor because I don't really deserve this because that's the frame or the the lens that they've entered into in that space. So they really worry about, you know, voicing their concerns or objecting to certain types of treatment because they're just, you know, thankful that they're getting care in this place. And then also just wanting to leave the hospital as soon as possible in order to decrease costs and really always weighing the care they need against the financial weight and also face real like fears around detention and deportation, depending on their status. There's a lot of different compounding factors for folks with precarious immigration status, but certainly the financial cost if they're uninsured is one of the most significant and really exacerbates some of the other ones. I have a couple of follow-up questions, Dr. Marius. One of them is you mentioned how some migrants who do come in, they often have private insurance plans. Are they based in Canada? Do they have these insurance plans from perhaps their uh, home countries? And then the second question I had is for pregnant families who don't have the means to receive care. Like, are there services or initiatives in place to support migrant people? Yeah. So in terms of the private insurance, um, so this has to be an insurance that uh, will be accepted in Canada. So usually these are Canadian insurance plans. So um, for international students, for example, like the university kind of like sets you up on a given plan. A lot of people have Blue Cross. Those kind of big plans that we kind of know in Canada are um, are also plans that these folks in these groups are accessing. They can certainly have insurance from other countries, but there are different types of insurance that are going to be applied in different kinds of or different geographical settings. So even if they have an insurance from their home country, it might not actually be accepted in Canada. So there's going to be specific guidelines around that. And also, if it's something like uh, travel insurance, it's going to cover different sorts of things than a more comprehensive insurance plan would. So even with the comprehensive kind of insurance plans, things like reproductive care are often considered elective um, rather than necessary treatment. So in that way, they're really not comparable to public health insurance, especially for people who can become pregnant. You know, private insurance often doesn't cover things like pre-existing conditions or chronic conditions um, or anything it categorizes as elective. And the second question, so um, this looks different in every province. Um, I guess the one thing that would be kind of consistent is generally speaking, if you show up at an emergency room, um, 
in need of care and active labor, um, they are supposed to attend to you. This is part of the the oath that um, healthcare providers take. In a lot of cases, this is kind of the the care that's available. It's the emergency room, which is you know problematic for a number of reasons, but certainly it means they're not getting that wraparound comprehensive perinatal care that we would like people to get. And it's also really stressful um, because you can show up and, you know, we've had instances or, you know, heard stories where people are like, well, you're not far enough along, we can't accept you. Like you can still be refused, right? So that's a really scary position to be in. There are certainly different like grassroots initiatives in different cities. So we have different clinics and, and types of partnerships uh, in Toronto, Montreal, have some great ones, for example, where we do see those kinds of supports, but it's really the result of the the grassroots advocacy um, mobilizing around these issues. Why is it important to include reproductive rights, a reproductive justice framework to Canada's immigration system? I guess very simply, it's a an issue of discrimination. So this is a very gendered problem. So people without the capacity to become pregnant aren't encountering these issues because their reproductive health needs are different. As I said before, private insurance providers commonly consider any medical care to do with pregnancy as elective and therefore it's costly. So women migrants, but also of course, uh, gender diverse people who can become pregnant disproportionately feel the physical, emotional, and mental toll of these costs, as well as their disruptions to their immigration status or trajectory because of their pregnancy. So for example, for many people entering Canada, Canada, their right to be in Canada is directly connected to maintaining their employment or student status. So if this is interrupted, for example, by a pregnancy, they risk not only losing their job, but also their home in Canada, their place in Canada, their community. See, this really highlight the hidden ways that these types of programs and the ways in which the healthcare system builds on them are really uh, created with a young, able-bodied male in mind, right? So someone who can work, who can study, who's work and study patterns in Canada won't be disrupted by reproductive concerns. So while there are no overt gender criteria on these immigration programs, what it nonetheless signals is that if you come to Canada, don't get pregnant. And for people with uteruses who come here, don't have sex or intimate relationships because you could get pregnant. It doesn't say this, but this is the signal we're sending when we don't take into consideration, you know, the implications of, of what this looks like. But we have people coming here, you know, working, studying, living in communities, developing relationships, contributing in all kinds of ways who are here for years and years with temporary status. Sometimes they come with their partners. And we know that these kinds of basic human experiences, like having kids or raising a family, you know, are going to be significant challenges for them. So we have international students who don't take leaves after giving birth and are still trying to attend classes, or migrant workers who work in very physically demanding jobs up until they give birth, when really we know that's not safe. And it's not respecting the, the humanity and bodily and familial integrity of people. It's important to think about the ways that our immigration system itself shapes these experiences it, these experiences, and what it is contributing to um, these kinds of gendered experiences or challenges. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I resonated with a lot of what you said. I'm an international student here myself. And just accessing any kind of health services always gives me stressors because I'm like, okay, well, I'm paying $75 a month. I don't know what it covers. Like the there are a lot of barriers in place 
for me to get to the website that's going to provide me a list of places I can go to to receive care. And that kind of like brings me to, you know, our uh, next question, which is what role do you think reproductive rights and justice currently play in the Canadian immigration system? Yeah, Canada has made, you know, maternal health and sexual and reproductive rights national priorities. There's a system in place that's meant to ensure a gender-based analysis of these policies, uh, immigration included, and has really talked loudly, both nationally and internationally, about being a feminist government and having gender-sensitive kind of a approaches to these types of things. And yet, uh, we have an immigration system that continues to prioritize these kinds of precarious migration pathways over immigration programs that allow people to migrate with permanent residency and full entitlement to social and health supports on arrival. So yes, it, in some ways, it's a health problem, like who's eligible for provincial health care coverage in each province. This is a, the jurisdiction of the provincial health authorities. But it's also an immigration problem because they, they provide the structure and the framework and the categories that allow people to say or allow policymakers to say, oh, it's OK to exclude certain groups of people because they're only temporary or whatever their status may be. So as I said before, there are different ways that certain governments or certain jurisdictions are responding to this issue. One is banding limited access to provincial health care coverage for pregnant people. So we can see an example of this in Quebec, but we can also look to the U.S. For example, um, very specific kinds of programs in New York or California are catered to marginalized pregnant people. Provincial governments can also expand access to healthcare insurance more generally to certain groups. So Manitoba did this for international students in 2011, although it was rescinded in 2018. Quebec recently did this for um, all children, regardless of status. So we see that provinces do have the capacity to expand eligibility to people with different statuses. It's just about political will. And uh, secondly, governments can provide funding to or work in partnerships with nonprofit uh, community clinics to provide certain types of care. As I said before, we see this, we see examples of this in Toronto and Montreal. And in Ontario, um, we can see the province working with midwives who have played a really particular and significant role in providing this care to uninsured pregnant people. So there are examples that we can follow and look to that Sure, have their limitations, but are expanding access to care for people. And those are largely health sector initiatives. Um, so, yeah, as I said before, I guess, uh, in terms of immigration, um, it's moving away from immigration programs that promote precarity, instability, and allow for barriers to access to basic things like healthcare. We've been discussing a lot about how this is a very gendered issue. Another thing we wanted to ask you as well was sort of how does access to reproductive care for pregnant immigrants vary based on class, race, ethnicity, and other socioeconomic factors? So I think um, in terms of class or socioeconomics, it's pretty clear for people who are low income, if they happen to be uninsured or privately covered but have to pay costs up front, um, these kinds of costs um, accumulate if they become pregnant and move forward with the pregnancy are just financially devastating, quite frankly. So international students who are already working two jobs to cover the cost of tuition now face with a $30,000 hospital bill. Like, what do you do? 
temporary workers who are in Canada working the jobs no Canadian wants to work because they're too low paying or people who aren't even formally allowed to work because they're in between programs or who've lost their status um, in other ways. These are not high income groups, generally speaking, simply because of the way that the, the, the migration programs are structured and, and the criteria and the types of work they end up taking on. And if an agreement cannot be made with the hospital, you know, their, their information does get sent to debt collectors and people start getting harassed and it becomes even more stressful and more untenable. And so in terms of other kind of subjectivities, technically speaking, anyone from around the world uh, can have a precarious immigration status in Canada. In practice and reality, we know that most precarious migrants are racialized people with few uh, economic resources. So for example, our agricultural work programs are almost entirely used by people from Latin America and the Caribbean. Our income caregiving programs or work permits have almost entirely been um, used by women from the Philippines. Uh, we also know we have large numbers of international students from China, India, Nigeria. So when we think generally about um, who's actually impacted by this issue and who bears the short and long-term costs and consequences of precarious migration, it is racialized individuals and their families. Um, and they carry those experiences with them, even if they someday become citizens. And this plays out in other ways uh, specific to their pregnancy as well. A person whose family is living in a country that requires a visa to travel to Canada is going to face more barriers. Getting that concrete family support postpartum, whereas someone from the U.S. can have their family come and go without that extra layer of paperwork and securitization. We also have in incidences um, where a Muslim woman who wears a hijab but is paying for the cost of her delivery may not be able to afford a private room. And they then may face, you know, additional challenges having her religious and bodily integrity respected in the hospital because she has to, you know, be more cautious about what she's wearing, who's in the room and those kinds of concerns because of her beliefs and, and religious practices. So there are a lot of layers to these types of challenges, and they're shaped in numerous ways by, by people's unique positions and, and the identities that they bring with them. What reforms or repairs need to happen to extend access to reproductive care for pregnant immigrants? I mean, we can think about this, uh, I guess, from two different like policy venues. So on one hand, there could be a healthcare intervention. So we could expand our existing public health care to provide coverage for folks who don't have it. And there's also a, a lot of work to be done around, you know, sensitizing or providing information and training to folks in healthcare settings about, you know, what it means to have a precarious migration status, how that happens. And the other side of it is the immigration side. So we have an immigration system that makes people vulnerable just in virtue of the different categories that it and, and pathways that it uh, guides people along or forces people into. And when we say that, oh, it's okay to treat uh, people in this kind of category differently because they're not actually part of us as citizens, that's a problem. Um, well, that brings us to the very last question we had, and it's in regards to the framework that's based in U.S., and you shared some examples earlier as well. But we are curious to know, do reproductive laws in the United States impact access to reproductive care in Canada in any way? 
We live in a very, you know, interconnected, globalized world where for sure there are domestic and international implications of many types of the policy decisions um, that are made in, in specific countries and healthcare included. The truth of it is, is that people have been crossing borders to access healthcare and perhaps abortion especially long before Roe v. Wade was rescinded. In some ways, it's built into our healthcare system. So there are very few places that people can access like a surgical or aspiration uh, abortion in Canada after 20 weeks gestation. So already people in Canada are getting directed to the U.S. for these procedures. And I'm sure there are also instances of Americans accessing this care here. And I think my kind of key takeaway on this and what I've learned through my work on, on immigration is that we need to think critically about the work that borders do and the meaning that we want to attribute to them. So if we truly believe that reproductive rights are healthcare and healthcare is a human right, then how can we allow something like being born on the other side of a given border limit that right? Thank you so much, Dr. Larios, for joining us today and to our listeners for tuning in. We would also like to thank the UBC Medicine Learning Network, the University of British Columbia, and everyone that has donated to the Women's Health Research Cluster for their support of this project. If you want to help transform women's health on a global scale, donate to the Women's Health Research Cluster today at www.womenshealthresearch.ubc.ca. If you liked the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe on whichever platform you get your podcasts on to be notified when new episodes drop every second Wednesday of the month. And check out our show notes online to dig into the resources we talked about today. We also have other exciting women's health research being shared on our women's health blog and through events like the Women's Health Seminar Series. So make sure to head over to our website at womenshealthresearch.ubc.ca to learn more. Until next time, I'm Chavi Mehra. And I'm Sarah Williscraft. Thanks for listening. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 